Please turn also in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. The text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 14. This is God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our righteous Father, we thank you for your generous provision to us. We thank you that your word is perfect, that all your ways are just. Father, we acknowledge that it is by your love that you predestined your people to be adopted as sons. Father, we acknowledge that we receive No inheritance of value in this world. Any of it that we get, we cannot take with us. But you have prepared for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and is kept in heaven for us. Father, we pray that we might treasure the things that come from you, and that we might delight in the things that are eternal. Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know you, we pray that you might do a mighty work. That... Sinners would embrace the good news of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for your mighty power. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and compassion upon us. And we pray, Father, that we would trust in you, that you control everything, every detail of our lives. You do it for your glory, and, Father, you do it for our good. Father, we ask that that Jesus would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here, what we're witnessing in our society is the destruction of the nuclear family. 
there is the prevalence of fatherlessness. How many people, or what's the percentage of people who are young and growing up in homes that are broken or single-parent households? That there's this prevalence of fatherlessness. That to have a father is a rare thing. To have a godly father is even more rare. And when we think about that, we think, how, how is it that this doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of spiritual adoption, how, how will it be a comfort to people who are outside looking in? How will they understand? Well, here, what we ought to understand is that God is our Father, that He adopts us, that He adopts us through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. For those who are in the world who have no earthly fathers, they at least won't have an inheritance from an earthly father whom they apparently don't have. There's no connection. There's no love. There's no compassion. But here, what we're promised is that as sons, we have an eternal inheritance. And it's because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And it's kept in heaven for you. This book of Ephesians speaks about our glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and about His beloved bride, the church. And this this phrase is mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 1, about this mystery, the mystery that is made known to man. That the Apostle Paul, he in verses, in chapter 1 here, verses 3 through 14, he has one giant sentence. And for, for some of you children, like me, who, when young, would write, run on sentences, right? That I was constantly corrected. You know, the teachers would say, hey, you, have a run, you, just, you just have this run-on sentence, right? You didn't have punctuation, young man. And, and here, the Apostle Paul, uh, he has this run-on sentence, right? But it's divinely inspired. It's a divinely inspired run-on sentence, And because here he is overflowing with praise, overflowing with praise, and and the section is so dense. This is why we're going in shorter sections for for each Sunday. Here we have in verses uh, 3 through 14, we have a Trinitarian summary of salvation. How God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in your salvation. There in verses 3 through 6, we're still in this section. It's the work of the Father. And then in verses 7 through 12, we have uh, the work of the Son. And in verses 12 and 13, we have uh, the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. And in the end of each section, as, as he transitions from talking about one person of the Trinity to the next... He mentions something about to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. That's, that's how we know we're transitioning. He's, he's describing what this person does in this, trinit, this uh, person in the Godhead. And then he gives glory to that one. And then he proceeds on to the next one and gives glory. And here we have a description uh, regarding in these verses an explanation of what every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ means. That Jesus, we're told in verse, in verse 3, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 4, we're told about the, how God chose us in Him. 
to be holy and blameless. And then here in verses 5 and 6, we're told that we were predestined for adoption. So the truth that we see in this passage, God's grace and love are manifested by his predestinating sinners to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God's grace and love are manifested by his predestinating sinners to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the motive for predestination. Second, the goal. And third, the value. So we have in the first point, the motive for predestination. Here, we see it in verses 5 and 6. So this statement, in love. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we have in this context, verse 3, the Apostle Paul speaking about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verses 4 through 14, he's giving you the description of all those spiritual blessings in Christ. In verse 4, he speaks about how uh, we, in Christ, were chosen to holiness. Chosen to holiness and blamelessness. And it happened before the foundation of the world. So we're chosen unto holiness. And then verse 5 here, we were predestined unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Some people wonder about this in love. Is this in love... Does it come at the end of verse 4? Is it connected to the thought in verse 4? Or is it supposed to be connected to verse 5? Well, what we can say is this. It's hard to tell because it's this run-on sentence, right? But we know that here in verse 4 he's talking about chosen in him before the foundation of the world, right? And then in verse 5 we predestinated unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So we either chosen in love... Or were predestined in love. It seems like it's talking about the same thing. I'm sure there's another way to interpret it. But right now, we're going to interpret it in terms of it's in love that God has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So perhaps people are wondering, what is this predestination? First off, it seems like people get very upset when this word gets brought up. People just seem to have a visceral reaction against it. Our secular society understands uh, this idea. The term destiny, the term fate, is what happens uh, in the future. That it being set. That there is something set for the future. Something or everything. For for those who believe not in God, they... They can either believe in some kind of openness, right? Nothing is said. There's no fate but what we make. Or they believe that there is fate. And they'll probably have with it some type of a fatalism, uh, some type of a hopelessness. But yet this is a secular concept. Fate then is a blind force, just like Mother Nature is a blind force. See, this is... Uh, this is the, the world trying to make sense of uh, certain ideas. And then you have <clears throat> biblical truth. Well, biblical truth will often use secular language to explain things, right? So, so you look at how the gospel going to a culture 
Uh, they may or going to a different culture, they may or may not even have a written language. So when, when they start thinking about, hey, how are we going to communicate these certain ideas, uh, then they have to use words in their language to try to explain it. For example, uh, the, the idea of Hades, right? Jesus uses the word Hades to describe hell. But Hades is obviously a term used from Greek mythology. Uh, here we have the idea of a destiny, that there is something said, but it's not according to blind fate. It's according to our loving and compassionate God. God is the personal force behind creation and also providence. And some might say, well, uh, it seems like God controls just the important matters and the details he leaves up for us to decide. This is not really a solution. Rather, we should say that God controls everything, every detail. Jesus, in speaking about this, speaks about uh, the sparrow that falls to the ground. He says this, not, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. And he says, are not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Uh, Apparently, uh, you know, we, we haven't kept up with inflation here. I mean, I mean, we don't really eat sparrows, right, or sell them. But if they, if they sold, they'd probably be like two for a dollar, right? I mean, a uh, dollar doesn't buy you much these days. Uh, and we're also told that every hair on our head is numbered, that God controls even the details of that. So those of you men who struggle with hair loss, you realize that God is in control of that. Right? You can do, try to do something to fight against it, but God is in control even of your hair loss. Predestination, then, is God controlling whatever comes to pass. And we have an explanation of that further in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where we're told, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's all things. All things work out according to the counsel of God's will. And, and this is where people start to get upset and say, wait, who gave God the right to do that? To will everything, to plan everything in my life? What choice do I have? Well, on one hand, we can say, we, we make real choices every day. This is, this is the part where we don't fully understand that God is sovereign over every detail. And uh, we are responsible for making wise choices. And of course, God is never the author of sin. We're responsible. We'll be judged for our sins. Isaiah 45 <clears throat> uses the illustration about the potter and the clay. Someone can go up to the potter and say, hey, uh, well, why did you use that vessel for such a purpose? Or why, why didn't you put handles on that vessel? And, and God is like the divine potter. He, he chooses what he wants to do with his vessels. And no one can say to the potter, hey, why did you do that? No one does. But then here also we can say, God, is this not all of your creation? Do you have a right? Do you have a divine right to do what you want? The answer is he does. God has a will. We are, sub we are submissive to it. If we begin by saying God is a tight-fisted, uh, owner of everything, and we got to pry his hand open to give us anything at all. Before we start in the wrong place, we start by thinking God is good, that God is generous, God is holy, that God is wise. You add all those together, 
then it's, we can trust this God. He's looking out for our good. He brings himself glory. That he's exceedingly generous. He, know what is, he knows what is best for us. Then we come to the conclusion that all that God has planned for us indeed is good. This is predestination. God's plan. And we're told that he, he never fails in his plan. For us, as humans, we don't know the future. So we have plan A's, we have plan B's, we have plan C's. And oftentimes people are told, hey, if you don't have a plan B, you're in trouble. Meaning you have only one plan A. When things start to go wrong, you have no alternatives. And they're probably right. We who don't know the future, we can't control the future, we ha- should have alternate plans. And if we have only one plan, it will... Life rarely goes according to that first plan. But God is one, he doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need a plan B. There's nothing that comes into into, uh, his his perspective where, shoot, I I didn't think that was going to happen. Or, hey, I didn't know about that. I need to learn. No, God doesn't have to learn about anything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. He has a plan A, and it never fails. Now, when we think about this motive, this motive of predestination, we're told that this motive is love. It's none other than love. He loved us, and so he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And this is love on God's part, demonstrating that it's not due to you and to me. Election, we're told, is unconditional. And what that means is That nothing good that you've done, that you consider good, guarantees your election. And nothing bad that you've done eliminates your election. That God God elects men in eternity past. He doesn't elect elect you based on what he thinks you've done and how well you've done. You understand that? It seems to us random, but it's not. And the explanation of that is that it's according to God's good pleasure. It appears random. We don't have an explanation for it. He doesn't explain himself other than he does it in love and he does it for his good pleasure. This is completely contrary to the ways of this world. We're told that in love he predestined us to adoption. Because this is God thinking about the future. This is God thinking about eternity. In our society, in our culture, love is merely a feeling. It's merely a feeling or a desire. And it is temporary. It's a feeling or desire, and it's only a temporary one at that. True love is willing to be bound by oath. God willingly binds himself under oath, under his word. Look at the covenant of grace that God freely offers to sinners his grace through his son. He binds himself under oath. There's the covenant of marriage. You think about a love that a man has for a woman, he should be willing to bind himself under oath. There's also church vows. You think about how people talk about church vows. And, well, well why can't we get the benefits, all the benefits of membership without the, uh, the duties or the vows involved? God is one who binds himself willingly under oath, and he does it for our good. God is then the initiator. He's the initiator in this relationship, not man. 
God initiates from eternity. You think also about this idea of love being just a feeling. A suitor is one who comes knocking on a woman's door. And they desire the privileges of marriage without the oath. Saying, hey, let me accept the privileges and the oath will come. These men are deceivers. They are not to be trusted. And those of you men, if you intend to do that, then I'm telling you, you are a deceiver. That there should be a willingness to fulfill the duties of marriage. Right? You, you have the requirements that it, you should be willing to be uh, taking the oath, to fulfill the oath before you profit from the privileges. This is what God does. Besides his love, there's also the motive of God's good pleasure. There in verse 6. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Sorry, that's verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. This is a reminder to us that God, when he saves people, when he adopts them from eternity, that he doesn't do so grudgingly. It's according to his good pleasure. It's according to the purpose of his will. So then, it's not as if God, he says, you know what? I made these grand plans, and I have no excitement in it, and I regret doing it, and I have to follow through because I'm bound by my own word. This, this is not the way that God does things. We're told that it's according to his good pleasure. That he has pleasure in fulfilling his purposes. He has pleasure in bringing sons and daughters to faith in Jesus Christ. That another chapter of your life, that his delight is bringing you to glory. His delight is revealing to you his, his, great, his grand plan. Wait a minute. That this almighty God would condescend to our level. That he would condescend to consider our needs, our eternal needs. Not only, not only our daily needs, but our eternal needs. And he takes good pleasure in that. He takes good pleasure in that. When people think about doing their pleasure, you think about vandalism, right? Simple example of vandalism. Well, why, why did you damage this person's house? Well, I felt like doing it, and I enjoyed doing it. Well, you realize that someone else's house is damaged now. So what? Well, you need to pay for it. I'm not going to pay for it. And you think about how people exercise their own wills according to their good pleasure at someone else's expense. And here, everyone must answer to someone. That's the very principle that we have in this, in this life. That we're all under authority. We all have to answer to somebody. And in fact, it should be the case that we're answering not just to someone. We're answering to multiple people. You think about anything that you have. Someone answers to someone else. What if you own your own business? You still have to answer to the customer, right? You own your own business. Someone has to buy your product. You have to serve somebody. So you're serving a customer. You answer to them. 
Think about your employees. Uh, someone owns a company, they still have to answer to their employees too. But at the end, everyone answers to God. Everyone answers to God. Despite however many people we must answer to in this life, among men, everybody answers to God. And then you ask, to whom does God answer to? The answer is, God answers to nobody at all. There's no one above him. There's no one above him in authority. He doesn't answer to anyone. And so when we're told that he does his will, his good pleasure, there doesn't need to be an explanation about that. Right? He does his good pleasure. That's good enough for us. It should be. It should be acceptable. And so here, we ought to understand that your life and my life is not an accident. It's not a cosmic accident. Have you met people that actually say, I was an accident? I've met people where they talk about, oh, I have these siblings that are above me, and they're spaced out in rather small increments, a year, two years, three years. And then there was like this huge gap, right? And then my parents had me. And then they will say, my parents have told me that I was an accident. Right? And, and we can laugh at that. But you realize that that child, <clears throat> however unwanted or mocked he or she is, that it may have been an accident in their parents' plans, but that person was never an accident in God's plan. And so also here regarding salvation, regarding adoption, none of these things are accidents. They happen according to his will. That you, who are in Christ, are part of God's grand plan. So we might, we might think, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? Well, admittedly, you and I don't know. But God knows. None of these things that happen in your life and mine are accidents. And we're trusting him with the purpose according to his good pleasure. So that's the first point. The motive. Love and his good pleasure. We have the second point, the goal of predestination. The goal of predestination. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we have an immediate goal. The immediate goal is adoption. So we're told earlier in, in verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So he talks about election there. But he continues down this path, and he, he keeps bringing up this concept of his sovereign choice in election and predestination, that he's saying that God's people are predestined for adoption. This concept of adoption is primarily a Greco-Roman practice. You look in the Old Testament, you look in the the Jewish writings, the Jewish culture, they wasn't, it wasn't apparently a big deal for them. Apparently in the Greco-Roman world, that there were wealthy people who either they had no children, or they were perhaps wildly disobedient, and wealthy, particularly wealthy parents who had an estate, who had some type of uh, business or dynasty, 
that they would look for people, they could be slave or free, doesn't matter, someone who was capable, someone that they trusted, who they would say, hey, we need you to take over the family business, or you are worthy to receive this inheritance. So that you have the Apostle Paul, he's the one who mentions, mentions it in Romans, mentions it in Galatians, right here that whether slave or free, it's not important, right? What's, what matters is that this person has gained the trust of uh, someone else, and they bequeath their wealth to them. In Christian adoption, God shares his infinite wealth with you and I. He shares it with us as sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. It's exceedingly greater and exceedingly more value than earthly and human adoption. The wealth is far greater. The wealth comes to an end in this life, no matter how wealthy your parents are. But when God adopts us as his children, the riches have no end because they come to us in Jesus Christ. We can bring it with us to heaven. We have it in heaven. Here, we think also about uh, the claim. Some people claim, what are you talking about when you say you're adopted and you have God as your father? Every person, every person who lives has God as their father. How can you think that you're any different? Oh, okay, well, let's explain that. Well, well isn't that true that didn't God create everyone and, and that everyone can claim God as their father? Well, they can claim him as father regarding creator. Everyone must answer to him as judge, as father. But there's a difference. There's a big difference. That God is father to all people by creation, but he's not the father of all people by salvation. He's not father to all people by adoption. That God doesn't save all. Contrary to what some would like to claim, that God is not duty-bound to save everyone. He's duty-bound to save no one. He, gets, he gives justice to every person. And that's fair. Everyone gets justice. We get what we deserve. And so here, we ought to understand that God is father is through adoption in Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, no one can claim him as father, not spiritual father. So the other question that comes up, <clears throat> well, if you're not a child of God by adoption, then what are you? Sadly, there's only one other option. <clears throat> the sad truth is that Satan rules in those who are outside of Christ. The scriptures are clear. Think about what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. And it's not just the Pharisees. He's talking about them and people like them. John 8, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here, this is Jesus saying to the religious leaders, the best, the best that the world has to offer. And he's saying, you are of your father, the devil. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who, who is at work in this world? It is Satan. Satan who is at work in the sons of disobedience. So if, if, you, don't, if you don't have God as father through adoption in Christ, then you're left with serving the desires of Satan. And it's a horrible option. It's a horrible alternative. We think for a moment about the duties or the requirements of adoption. That adoption requires a new nature. And God is the one who gives that new nature. God imparts this new nature in regeneration, giving, giving us spiritual birth. That's the whole meaning behind we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive together in Christ. That he, he gave spiritual life, which man cannot do. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Only God can give spiritual life. So God gives us a new nature. Here as adopted children, <clears throat> we must think not only of the privileges, we must also think about the duties. That we must embrace the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 <clears throat> is exceedingly clear that um, we are not illegitimate children. We're not illegitimate spiritual children. That if God loves us as his, as, as his children, he will discipline us so that there might be a harvest of righteousness. So when we look at our lives, when you think about the difficult circumstances that you have right now, we ought to be thinking, <clears throat> how is the Lord disciplining me right now so that my heart, my desires, my actions, my character would be more in line with Jesus, my Lord. That's what we should be asking ourselves. It's only when difficult times come that we even start to ask the question, what does God want from me? When times are easy, we're always asking that question, what do I want for myself? When difficult times come, it's as if God gets our attention and then we're asking, what does God want from me? He wants us to be those who submit to him in his will. He wants us to embrace the discipline that comes. And we're told that no discipline is pleasant. It's not, it's not fun. No one likes getting the rod, literally. <clears throat> no one likes getting the rod figuratively. We also have a new father, no longer Satan. And we must obey the Lord from the heart. So there's discipline. And the response to discipline is that we should obey. Our elder Wayne read earlier in Ephesians 5... <clears throat> that no immoral, impure, or the dishonest person, uh, which is idolatry, a covetous person, which is idolatry, that they will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. So here, describing the principle, he who continues on in his sins, that he can't claim that he's an adopted son. Here, perhaps you're even wondering, how come you haven't counterbalanced this adoption as sons and then included adoption as daughters? Well, the principle is there. God doesn't exclude women. But we have to understand that there are certain things that are true. <clears throat> Back then, adoption 
was particularly for sons. In certain cultures, only men could inherit property. So perhaps what you can say is, here, we're talking about adoption as sons. It also includes daughters. Women can inherit spiritual things eternally from God, as, as God's children, indeed. But you look at, we're told in Ephesians 5, <clears throat> that we are the bride of Christ, right? So we don't, we don't say we're the groom of Christ, right? If you're male, no, it's the bride of Christ, right? So there's, there's, a, <clears throat> there's one way, <clears throat> and there's another way. And here, we're talking about adoption, is that it's sons, but of course, we include daughters. We think also about the privileges of adoption. One is that you have the Father's name on you. We might say that here we have God's name on us because we're marked out by baptism. We're marked out by baptism as his own. We also have the protection of the Father. Have you ever wondered what a mama bear would do to you? if she found you between her and her cubs. You could be feeding her cubs berries. Hey, no worries. I'll pick them for you. I'll do the work, right? It's not going to be good for you. There was one time when we were hiking, and uh, we came, up, came upon this cute little, it was a black bear, but it was like cinnamon colored, like a very light brown, very small cub. And people wanted to, wanted to play with the thing. And... I was trying to convince them, let's stay on the trail and get out of here because the mother will soon be close by and we don't want to be there. Apparently the cub was lost because we saw her again coming down. But the bottom line is to harm God's children would be a horrible thing. That God protects his own. We also have the privilege as adopted children of crying out to God, Abba, Father. I was once told a story about how things are like in the orphanage. <clears throat> that children eventually learn not to cry. Can you imagine that? They learn not to cry because they realize they could cry and they cry and they cry. No one comes to help them. No one comes to assist them. You think about it, especially in, in other countries where you might have however many assistants, however many people who work in the orphanage, uh, one to a hundred. They don't have time to pick up and hold and comfort a hundred children. They cry, nothing happens. They stop crying. They just learn crying doesn't do any good. But here, we're told as adopted children, God's adopted and beloved children, we can cry out to him. He recognizes, he recognizes the cry. Ah, that is my own. That's my own child. He doesn't answer the cries of those who are not his adopted children. He answers those who are his children. We can cry out to him. And our crying matters to him. He hears us. And he answers us. We also have the privilege of the provision of the Father. He has promised that the righteous would not go hungry. <clears throat> he also has promised that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is God's provision because he loves us as his children. So the goal of predestination, the immediate goal was adoption. And then we have the ultimate goal is God's glory. This involves a complete reorientation of who we are. We're oriented to be self-centered. 
that we think about ourselves, we think about our name, we think about our property, we think about uh, what is good for us, and that we're very good at thinking about that. But you realize that in Christ, as God's adopted children, there must be a new orientation. The ultimate goal is God's glory. God's name is glorified. Jesus is the name above all names. It means that it's no longer for your glory and mine. I had a minister tell me, he was preaching a sermon at, uh, at the last Bible Presbyterian Church Senate meeting. And the sermon was the challenge to ministers and to elders and to all Christians that we would serve wholeheartedly our God with all that is in us and that we would desire be forgotten. You understand that challenge? Your name won't be remembered. Oh yeah, there was a pastor we once had. What was his name? I don't remember. Good, let's keep it that way. Hey, what do you remember then? I remembered, he kept on pointing us to Jesus. And, and who receives the glory? Oh, Jesus receives the glory. Well, good. That's the way it ought to be. This is what we ought to desire, if anything. And that God's glory, not ours, it's a reminder to you and to me, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have no boasts of our own. We contribute our sins to our salvation. And God is the one who saves us by a great deliverance. So that's the second point, the goal of predestination. We have the third, the value of predestination. <clears throat> the value of it is what God has planned for his people through the work of Jesus Christ. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we have the value as seen in adoption, adoption in Christ. You realize that adoptions are expensive. We're talking uh, physical, earthly adoptions. Domestic adoptions, think of something like at least 20K, 20,000 US. Foreign adoptions, going to other countries and adopting. It's more like 50K. Think about it, the inflation rate, probably more like 60K. So adoption is not cheap. <clears throat> but you realize that spiritual adoption is that much more expensive. It only comes by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It only comes by his perfect work, by the perfect life that he lived. Scripture teaches us that you who are in Christ that you are co-heirs with Christ. You're heirs of God. And it's only because Jesus willingly shares with you his inheritance. You remember the story about the prodigal son? It seems as if Jesus was telling that parable. It was as much about the younger son as it was about the older son. Because Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, talking to the Jews... And for the Jews, he was telling them what they were like. They were like the older son. And the description of the older son and how he responded to the younger son who came back from, from, his, uh, from his waywardness, <clears throat> from his sinful ways, there was no rejoicing on the part of the older son. And there was a resentment of the part of the older son because the younger son 
took, took his share of the inheritance. It was used up. And what the older son was saying is, wait a minute. This son who gets the signet ring, what I have left from the father has to then be divided again. He's already taken his inheritance. Now what he's going to take is mine. And you realize that with Jesus, this is exactly what he didn't do. So the Jews were thinking, no, no, no. God, whatever you have has to remain with us. But Jesus was saying, no, no, no. All these merits, all these spiritual riches, I'm going to share with my brothers and sisters. This is the costly price of adoption in Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here, believing on Jesus Christ, then you have a right. You have a right to become children of God. It's only through Jesus, believing in his name. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ today? You realize that our Lord Jesus is one who freely offers us himself. The perfect life he lived, he offers us by faith. The righteousness you lack, he offers to us. Believe upon him and receive the free offer of salvation. The death and the cross, he died in our place. And we have in him a perfect savior. Embrace the promises of the gospel and realize that God the Father willingly receives you as his children through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. We also have the value of predestination found in God's grace to us. There in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. God's grace to us is bestowed through His Son, Jesus Christ. You ask yourself, is there any way to get the Father? Is there any way to get heaven outside of the work of Jesus Christ? The answer is no, there is not. Jesus is the only way to the Father. God's grace is not a cheap grace. God's grace is an exceedingly costly grace. I'll give you an illustration. When we say that the gospel is free, that's not saying that the gospel is cheap. There was a time once, I, I don't know, if, I don't see them around as much, but if you go outside of a store, like outside of a supermarket, they used to have these locking containers, right? So they're clear. And they might have, you know, the local newspaper. So you put a coin in there, you, and the thing can open, and you can take out a paper, and you can shut it. You, you ever seen these? Right? And, and for some of those containers, you don't, it doesn't require a coin. It doesn't require any coin. The thing is just there to, to, to keep the, uh, the newspaper from getting wet. And, and typically, those are the worthless newspapers. So those, the ones that it would be immoral to look at, even. Right? They're, they're in these containers. They're free. And we think about that free as cheap, as worthless, as worthless garbage. It's not, bother, it's not worth it to read. But you realize that when we say that the gospel is free, it's not free in the same way. It's free in that you cannot pay for it. You cannot earn it. That's why it's free. But it's costly. It's priceless. It comes by the grace of our God 
through Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, you were bought at a price, we're told. You are bought at an infinite price. And this is why we're told to honor God with our bodies. So that we might say, we've been bought. Been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of Him, we are co-heirs with Him. We're heirs of God. And that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places reserved for us because of Christ's perfect work. And you and I are called to believe upon it, to receive it by faith, and trust that it is there already for us. That Jesus has promised that He will prepare a place for us, and that He has done so. This is what we believe. May we live according to that faith. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Almighty God, we thank You, Father, that You